Our scripture reading comes from the book of 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Amen. Well, if you uh, <clears throat> open your Bibles to 1 John, we are in chapter 2, as, as Branch just read, and it's uh, one of the most convicting little letters in the Bible, uh, along with his other two. And so we've gone through um, the first chapter, and now we're going to hit um, this, the second chapter. Begin by saying something that's quite obvious, which is that people are a very, very different uh, to the glory of God. We're all, uh, even in this church, uh, very different people. We have different ages. Um, I won't ask you what they are. We have different genders. Those should be obvious. Uh, We have different personalities. Uh, We all possess different passions. Um, We have different giftings and and different experiences, um, different interests, different irritating little quirks. Um, We're very different, and that's a good thing. I love that we are different. We live in a culture uh, almost to an extreme that accentuates and tries to to emphasize those those differences. You just think of everything from ringtones to Netflix to iPods. You can have your own unique tribe, your own unique culture, uh, almost to a a negative fault, uh, if you will. But I think there's a good thing that there's differences, and uh, similarly, the body of Christ, the church, was designed to be different. Uh, it's described as a body which is obviously full of different parts that work together, eyes and noses and ears and toes and feet and hands, and none of those things can um, live independently, but they each have their own unique uh, role and their unique function, and it's a beautiful thing. And though we are different, we see uh, by the grace of God that we come together as one body, as one family, uh, and there's things that unify us. We are unified by one faith, by one Lord, by, as the Bible says, one baptism. And up to this point, John has, has been writing uh, really not to emphasize our differences, which again are good and right and should be celebrated, but to really focus on the essentials, the things that Christians share that are the same, uh, specifically our, our doctrine, that being the gospel, uh, our confession of sin, that we all share sin and therefore we should all share in, in confession of our sin, um, our love, that, that's one thing that characterizes, it's the same for all Christians, that we love our brothers. And lastly, uh, our obedience, which uh, is the precursor to all those things. Now, unity 
uh, is that, that sameness in essentials, but it's not sameness in everything else. We're different, as I said, dress different, talk different, look different, um, but we have these essentials that, that cause us to be the same. Now, because of our differences, though, uh, we have this uh, diverse church. Damascus Road is, is a, has its own unique culture. We have our own flavor, our own style that isn't necessarily better or worse. It's just who we are. It's kind of like, if you remember, this might sound disgusting, but growing up, I used to remember or recognize every family had their own smell. You know what I'm talking about? Not bad smell, just smell. And you have your own smell. That's why you take your pillowcase and your own pillow to camp because it smells like home and it smells like you and that might really stink. But it's your smell and you love it. So every, every home has its aroma. Every church has its aroma. And it's just its own unique flavor and style. But, um, and that does mean that every church around here is different. Um, you've gone to churches, you've you stayed here, maybe because one of the styles appealed to you or it smelled good. Maybe some of it bugs you, I don't know. But you go down to different churches and they're different. But the thing about churches, just like homes and families, um, is that any church that is truly gospel-centered, any church that is truly biblical will also be the same in some ways. There'll be some things that are exactly the same and should be the same, and that is what determines what is a healthy church probably and what is not, regardless of the flavor or the style or the culture that's been created by the differences in that church. So there's the sameness, and John here, beginning in verse 12, is kind of address some of those things that are the same about the church that you should find in any healthy church. And he begins by addressing the different groups of people that he's writing to. He's writing to uh, the churches in Ephesus, around Ephesus. And in these churches, uh, there's an audience that he's writing to, and it's made up of certain types of people. Now, he has indirectly identified kind of two categories uh, in any church, which is believers and non-believers. And amongst the non-believers, he has specifically addressed two types of non-believers, um, basically those who have um, lied about being Christians, but either like the community or whatever they like, but they truly aren't saved by Jesus. Uh, they're, they're not faking it, but in some ways they are. And then there are those who are false teachers. Uh, they know they're lying, and they are trying to deceive. So those people are in the church, and the Bible describes those people as goats and wolves, typically. And it's helpful to think about sheeps and goats and wolves. Goats are goats. What are goats like? Well, goats go around making lots of noise. Uh, they eat everything, uh, every lie they swallow. It doesn't really matter what it is, if you've ever seen a goat. And they pretty much irritate the flock. Okay? That's a goat. A wolf is a little bit different. A wolf goes around looking for weak sheep to eat. Okay? A wolf is intending on telling lies, uh, flattering, if you will, to try and allure and persuade away from the flock so they can separate from community and separate from the shepherd ultimately to kill you. That's what wolves do, and that's why we, don't met, we can tolerate goats, deal with goats, we shoot wolves. Okay? Whoa, that was interesting. Now, that's, we can edit that out. Um, so every church, though, and there's also like... Um, what I would call, like, uh, in non-believers, like, not yet sheep. 
So they're not goats irritating people, but they're kind of this in-between stage. But every church ultimately has your sheep and your goats and your wolves. Um, but within the believers, within that sheep, within the flock that, that John's writing to, there are believers, all saved by Jesus, we're going to talk about those, that are at different places in the, the spiritual maturity journey, if you will. And this is who John talks about, uh, the different members of the family. And he says it calls them children and young men and fathers. And he's not really speaking about the kids and the adolescents and the dads. What he's talking about is the um, different, again, levels of spiritual maturity that should exist in every church. New believers, newborn believers, uh, maturing believers, uh, and then matured, if you will, seasoned older believers, adult believers, for lack of a better term, because it's not necessarily connected with age. We'll talk about that. But every church, I believe, should have these three all the time. New believers, maturing believers, and old believers. And if they don't, then there might be a sense or lack of health there. Because without new believers, I actually believe that the gospel is either not being preached, so power is not going out, which is the, the power of transformation, or people are not being reached. People are not living on mission and actually uh, bringing people into community uh, so they can hear the word or preaching the word to them, and then they come, whatever. So one of those things is not happening. The gospel is absent. And when you get a church like that without new people, not new people, but newborn believers, the church becomes very quickly old and dead. It starts dying if it's not dying already. If you, if you don't have maturing believers, um, then you end up having a gospel that might be being preached, but it's not going deeper, so you're really not building disciples. Um, what happens with that is that I do believe that anyone with any kind of skill, it doesn't take that much skill, can put together a really good water bottle to organize gerbils to come to it. Okay? You can gather a lot of people by doing lots of things, spending lots of money. The problem is if you don't have some sense of discipleship to take the gospel deeper in those believers, you end up creating a church that's really energetic like, man, we're excited about everything going on, but very shallow. Very shallow. No depth at all. And then if you don't have a church with older believers, you only have new believers, you're energetic, you have maturing believers learning their doctrine and going deeper. What you end up having, or lacking, I should say, is mentors and experience in the church to help protect and to guide and to lead. To help shepherd those younger believers um, with all the experience that they've had in life, in their faith. Um, and I think what happens is a church without those maturing believers, either practically without them or without a place for them, is you end up creating a church that becomes very prideful. And by prideful, I mean it looks back on generations. It goes, we've got it figured out, and we fixed all the things that you guys screwed up. And they end up making pretty reckless decisions, and taking risks that they ought not take, and if they had some wisdom there, they'd be like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Or here's what happened when we did this before. And you have having uh, young men trying to learn from other young men how to be dads and making the same mistakes when other dads who have been dads for a long time could have protected them from that kind of stuff. 
So all these people, I think, are necessary for the health of the church, and John addresses all these people. And as one of the pastors here, my goal and hope and job is to make sure that all these people are present, because those are markers of of health, to make sure there's a role and a place and a desire to have those, and to test our flock to see, like, are we doing a good job? And up to this point, John has given kind of tests of, of faith, like, are you really a Christian? And said, Christians do this, Christians do that, and it becomes a very difficult book to read. Well, now he's kind of saying to the Christians, now that we feel those who have confessed Jesus, let's assess where you're at on the spiritual journey. Because where you're at on that spiritual journey is going to dictate a lot. It's going to dictate, first of all, you need to be honest about where you're at. Because some of us are new believers and are pretending like we're not. Some of us are maturing believers, and we believe we have so much experience that we can speak truth into everyone else. So you have to understand, because understanding your role and where you're at if you're a Christian, yeah, this is going to be a sermon for you Christians. So you non-believers can watch, because I believe there are non-believers here, can watch and hear what the family is supposed to act like. But if you don't understand your role, you will not understand how you need to grow, how your role has changed, or how Satan is most likely going to attack you because he attacks people differently. And what I'm asking for those who confess to be Christians to act your age. To act, and I don't mean age, right? I saw enough kids graduate from high school who I pray never vote, okay? Just because they were 18 didn't mean they were instantly mature. Age and maturity don't necessarily go together. I told many a student, said, wait a long time before you marry and reproduce because you've got a lot more learning to go, okay? Maturity wasn't there, but they, I'm 18, I can do this, that, and the other thing. What we have to be careful is that, and I'll just be real honest, there are many of us who've been Christians a long time and we have not matured. And there's reasons for that. And you have to look back and ask yourself, because I don't know, when anyone became a Christian but myself and my children and my wife, I guess, you know when you were saved by Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart and your life was transformed. What's happened since then is the question. What's happened since then? Hebrews 5 is a very powerful verse. Chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 11, he's, this is what the writer says. and speaking about maturity. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, he doesn't try to minimize, say, being a child is evil, just to say that there is a time to be a child and a time to be mature. Determining whether we are a new believer or a young believer or an old believer is a very personal thing, but it will help all of us as a church body grow and help understand how you ought to grow, how you ought to change if your role has changed, and how Satan's going to attack you 
so you can be protected. We're going to start talking about new believers. I'm going to break it down a little bit because John is repetitive through this. I'm going to combine the repetitions he's put together. So we'll start talking about new believers in verse 12 and the last part of 13. And here's what he writes about new believers, or he calls little children. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So he addresses these newborn, what I'm going to call believers in the church. These are the newborn believers, the ones for whom God has recently, define that as you will, opened their eyes to see and receive the truth of the gospel. So they have come alive. They were once dead, they have come alive, and these people are a joy to be around. They are exciting to be around. I love to be around new believers because they are infectious. Their joy is infectious. They just want to know more. They just want to learn more and serve more and pray more and evangelize more. They just want to do more. They're excited, and it's exciting to be around them. They haven't had time for some of us older believers to get doubtful about God or doubtful about his word or cynical about the church. You've seen, it's kind of like you see new believers and you're like, yeah, you just wait till your first trial comes. Then we'll see if you're quoting Bible verses, right? Okay? You're like that. But they're not that stage. They're just a childlike faith. The kind of people that, you know, when, when there's trouble, we make our pros and cons list for those who are older in the faith, and they just like, let's just pray about it. Yeah, I know, but let's, let's think about how to do this. Well, let's pray for it. Let's just pray. God will tell us. Let's just pray. It's beautiful. It's innocent. It's awesome. New believers. And the truth is they're most excited about just being forgiven. They're most excited about being freed from guilt. They're most excited about that they don't have to work themselves to God in some way. They're most excited about Jesus saving them, about their new identity in this family. of That's what they're most excited. And we forget that as older, mature believers. And we see this and we go, oh, yeah, I want that. We want to see more people saved at Damascus Road. We need to see. And I'm not saying that because we haven't had enough. I'm just saying we have to constantly see that. We need that. And the reason why... We should even pray. We should be praying. So empty seats next. We should be praying that they be filled, not with a bunch of people that come from other churches, but new believers, new members of the family. How often do we pray to see transformation in people? And we should hope for that because the birth of a baby is always joyful. It's always joyful. It's always exciting. It's always something to celebrate. We have had lots of babies, literally, born at this church. Tons. Okay? We just had a new baby born. It's amazing how people come out of the woodwork. You don't even know. Oh, baby, oh, baby, so beautiful. It's exciting to see new life. Oh, he's so cute. I just don't understand. Babies look all the same to me. Like, I guess they're cute, right? No one's ever said, like, oh, that's an ugly baby. You know, it, it, they're all cute. They're all cute. Every new believer's cute, right? They're all exciting and, and joyful, and, it, and it's, it's, it's awesome to see the gospel transforming people and being reminded that, guess what? 
God's still at work. There's a living God still doing something, and new believers remind us of that in front of our face. And it's beautiful, and we need it. And when a new believer comes into a family, he's like a newborn. I'm going to say he, I mean she, okay, it's just easier. Don't need any sexist emails, okay, come on, just be, relax. But he's a new believer, he's a newborn, and, and we have a newborn, and they are very hungry, a lot. They're very passionate. Even the little guys are very passionate, very loud. Okay? You know when they're passionate. They are very excited over the little things. My son gets excited if I put my baseball cap on. Okay? He's eight and a half weeks old. I'm like, boom. You know, he's like happy. Little things. I can give him a, uh, you know, a a pop bottle or something. He'd be like, this is awesome. And it's like, you know, excited about it. With new kids, like, you know, three, four months old kids, you don't have to buy them toys. You can give them a bound up piece of paper. Be like, here. And they're like, they love it. There you go. Save yourself some money. Because the little things excite them. At the same time, the little things really upset them. The little, like, dumb things of life upset them. This is what newborns are like, and this is also what newborn believers are like. And newborn believers are also very vulnerable, and they're very dependent. They need someone to take care of them. They actually need community. They need people to come around and bathe them in the Word, and and encourage them with the Word, and wipe them when they get messy. Because they make a mess of themselves. And what does John say they need to be reminded of? You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Why? Because new believers sin a lot. So do old believers. A little, a little news flash for you. All right? But they need to be reminded that they are forgiven, that you are an adopted son. They need to be reminded of the gospel. Babies need community to survive. If they don't, if my son, if we don't feed him, we don't care for him, guess what? He dies. And we need to have that same attitude for new believers. 1 Peter 2, I love how he says this, speaking to all Christians, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And while we should never, ever, ever stop longing, as he says, for spiritual milk, never stop tasting of the Lord, at some point, you need to let go of the breast. Okay? What do you mean by that? That sounds really sick. What I mean is that you cannot depend upon pastors and books and sermons forever to feed you. Doesn't mean you don't enjoy the meals that a lot of pastors and and writers give you. But at some point, you have to start feeding yourself. You have to be able to feed yourself. I don't know how, I'm sure no one in here has ever said or left a church thinking, I just don't feel fed. I'm sure you've never said that. I've never said that. There's a lie, just sin, okay? We say that a lot, forgetting that we have responsibility to feast on the Lord, not to be spoon-fed forever. If we are ever going to be able to feed anybody, we best learn to feed ourselves. Now, 
That's the newborns. He goes on to talk about young believers, young men. Define maturity as you will, spiritual maturity, less mature, more mature. They're not the seasoned, and they're not the new believers, and they're in between. And he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So he talks to these young men, the somewhat mature believers in the church. Be careful identifying yourself as that. There are responsibilities that go with that. I'm one of the mature ones. A lot of us are still newborn. doesn't mean we should be, but a lot of us are. We have to be honest about where we're at. But these guys are not the young babes who need to be fed. They are not just the ones consuming. They are not just the ones consuming. doesn't mean they don't consume every now and then, but they are not characterized by consuming. Then there's a lot of people in our church and others that go from church to church feeding from the different buffets that are offered. And that's all they do. The, that is not the mark of a mature believer. A mature believer stops consuming and just taking, and they start being able to feed others. They are the servants, the men and women who do the heavy lifting, the ones at the front lines of the mission, the active part of God's army fighting in their own lives and in the community. He describes these guys as the strong ones, the ones in the midst of the battle, the ones who are fighting with brothers and sisters. I believe it's having established the gospel as a foundation. These are the ones who are working to understand the lordship of Jesus in all aspects of their life. It's not just the gospel basics. It's not just which you honestly could delve into and never fully understand. But there's an understanding that Jesus has given me a new identity. That his sinless life has been transferred to me. That his death was paid my penalty for my sin. That his resurrection gives me new... There's an understanding that and from there you go, what does it mean for Jesus Lord of my life? Here and here and here. Jesus as Lord transforms how I act as a husband. How I act as a father. What I do with my money. How I eat and drink. All that I do. That is wrestling with that, and it has a manifestation and outworking that actually looks like something. These are the ones, these young men, who have moved past the initial high of, you know, I'm saved, to the ones who see that there is a war going on. They are in the midst of a war. They have to put the armor of God on. There's an enemy that wants to kill them kill the relationship with God, kill the relationship in their marriage, kill everything. They see it. Doesn't mean they victoriously fight everywhere, but they fight knowing God is fighting and going before them. These are not the young children with airsoft guns who you would never send out into the battlefield. And these aren't even the old people who are maybe aren't the best ones to be going out in the battlefield either. These are Maturing believers who are the soldiers ready to fight. And he commends them having successfully overcome the evil one. He says it twice. They have successfully fought temptation. Not perfectly, but successfully. They have not given in to the lies of sin. They have not fallen for the lying promises that sin makes. They have regularly chosen right over what is easy. That's maturity, in case you're wondering. 
Choosing the harder right over the easier wrong. That's maturity. And they have successfully done that. They are progressing. They are winning the battle more than they are losing it. And they have overcome him, and they've grown spiritually, not because they've just really tried to live better. They're just going to do better. It says that they have devoted themselves to God's word. They have abided in God's word. God's truth has been the power that's come through them. I love Psalm 119. It's a very long psalm. But you should memorize verses 9 through 12 and then a few more after that. It speaks about young men. It says, how does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. He says in verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from my commandments, from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Does this describe you, mature believer? Is this your endeavor? Is this your pursuit? I'm careful to do what the Lord says. That's, that's what I'm endeavoring to do. Verse 10, I've stored your word. When was the last time beyond Awana that you memorized a verse? I mean, honestly. I remember in high school... When I was teaching, I was condemned by some of the other teachers um, who were just much cooler than me because I was giving juniors in high school spelling tests. They're like, that's for elementary school. It's like, yeah, that looks like when the spelling test probably stopped because none of them can spell. So I'm going to give them spelling tests so they can spell. Okay, Knowing the basics. Memorization of Scripture is not just a childish thing. It's actually a mark of maturity. And it does take discipline. And that's what the mature believer understands. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes, it says in verse 12. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The mark of a mature believer describing their desire and their efforts. They're no longer children. And as I said before, though, just because someone's older doesn't mean they're more mature. Spirituality works the same way. There are many people whom I know, there are many people in our church and in first service, and those who are not in attendance here, who quite frankly should be acting like young men and young women Spiritually speaking, but they're juveniles. They're acting like juveniles. You behave like juveniles. You make excuses like children for why you cannot obey the commands of God. If you don't know what kinds of excuses children make, you're welcome to come hang out at my house for a week, and you'll find out real quick the excuses they make for why they can't obey their dad. They're very creative, okay, very creative. I love the proverb that talks about a sluggard who says he can't go outside because there's a lion out there, okay? Very creative ways to be lazy, okay? The reality is that mature people don't act like juveniles, spiritually speaking. And at some point, you, whoever you are, it's time to start acting like an adult. Spiritually speaking. 
and start choosing and fighting for what is right over what might be easy and convenient. Well, that's a feel-good moment of the day. All right, verse 13. Keep going, the last section. Seasoned believers, fathers, he cries, describes him. Beginning of 13 and 14. says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I guess he wanted to make his point. Now, there are seasoned oaks in the church. I like using seasoned oaks and not old people. Because it's not age specific. But, traditionally, there are those of you who are older in our church. Define older as you want. Okay? Who are the seasoned oaks in this church? Now, twice John says that they know him who is from the beginning. I believe reminding them of the faith that is supposedly supposed to have carried them through the years. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It was just as fresh or ought to be just as fresh as when you first believed. Just as I pray in marriages, your bride men in particular, is as alluring, as beautiful, more so than when you first got married. Now, time and experience has taught these people a a ton. They've just had experiences in life, good and bad, difficult, prosperous and and, and impoverished. But the bulk of what the wisdom they have is supposed, for those believers, is supposed to have come from living the gospel that they first confessed and years of faithfully obeying God's word in the midst of those trials. And so they have this bulk of experience, these stories to share with the community. These are people who have trusted God through difficult things. Jeremiah speaks about this individual as a tree. I love it. In Jeremiah 17, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. And its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. It's got roots. It's got depth. It's got strength. It's got girth. It's a tree. The older man is a seasoned oak and he has been faithfully devoted to God and his word and it has produced a harvest. He's not shaken by the world. He's not threatened by the world. When the heat comes, he's not fearful. He endures. Not only does he have fruit to provide for those he's part of the community, he also has ways to teach and to cultivate so that they can grow their own fruit. And the reality is that this seasoned oak needs something. Just as the newborn needs community to come around and and feed them, just as the mature believer needs to be devoted to God's word and feast on that, the older believer needs others to pour into. Needs others to, to give to, to tell their war stories to, if you will, to instill a sense of, of, of purpose and, and joy in the midst of trial for them. And here's my, my greatest fear for you who are the seasoned oaks in our church. And I, will, I don't have a list. It's not like I have like a rubric like, well, you've moved into mature believer now. And like, you know, we map it out. 
So I don't know. If you characterize yourself as this seasoned oak, this is my greatest fear, is that you have listened to the, the lies of Satan. What lies? The lies that tell you you're outdated, you're useless, and you have no purpose or role here. That the younger generation who is here, they don't need me. They have it all figured out. Those are lies. I love how how Paul talks about it in the end of Romans 16 where he talks about this woman that mothered him. We need mothers and fathers who don't view themselves as, as useless shrubberies but as strong oaks that give us protection and guidance and hope. And that is somewhat to do with the attitude of the church towards you, but it's also your own attitude. And just as um, the newborns need to stop drinking from the breast at some point, and just as the mature people need to stop acting like juveniles, the seasoned oaks need to stop acting like invalids. And at some point, you have to take what has been entrusted to you and give it to, to another. Put that on the shelf for a second. Really brief we're going to hit 15 and 17 and then come back and see how it all makes sense. Hold on to your hats. Here we go. It says in verse 15, it starts talking about the world and the attitude we should have towards the world. And this is important because the world attacks each of those differently and we'll hit that and close it out. It says in verse 15, after saying all these, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, before we bring this full circle, the world that John is talking about is not just people. What he's talking about is that evil system that is under the dominion of Satan that rejects God's authority and is trying to rule in place of him. It is the evil part of our world with its false gods and its false values. That's what he's talking about when he says the world. We see that also in 1 John 5, and we'll hit that when we get to it. Many approach this verse, though, and start going, well, how do I love the world and yet hate the world, be in the world and love the world? Let me just give you my really quick summary, and that's this. When we talk about culture and engaging culture and all those things, you can't get away from culture. You're part of culture naturally. It's everything that we do and work for as humans from education to movies. Everything. The best we can do is is not go into culture and make cultural decisions by what should I do and what shouldn't I do. A better way is to ask ourselves, what is most glorifying to God here? And abstaining and participating in certain things is going to be driven by that question at different times in different places in different contexts. Because sometimes... It's going to be more glorifying for you to abstain from something, even though you can do it. It's what is most glorifying to God is what's most important. But in hitting this verse, I don't want to talk about engaging culture as much as what the world does to each of those family members differently. At this point, John has said, love God, love people, specifically the brothers, and do not love the world. And the implication is that the world is alluring. The world is, is tempting. The world is uh, desirable. Makes sense. We also can never forget that as that world is calling to you to be captivated, to tell you, basically, that you will be happier over here apart from God, know that that world hates you. 
That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Speaking to his disciples, he said, Hey, don't worry when the world hates you. It hated me first. They're going to treat you like they treated me. Side note, they killed him. So the world hates you. The sinful world rejects Christians if you confess the name of Jesus. They don't like that. The world, that which is under the dominion of Satan, wants to destroy you. So as that adulterous world calls to you, know that that's what's happening. If you are a Christian, you are married to God, and to love the world is to love another spouse. James 4 says it perfectly. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we're supposed to hate the world, like really hate it? No. Yes. You hate the world in the sense that you hate sin. But we don't dedicate our lives to hating sin as much as we devote our lives to loving Jesus, which results in hating sin. Do we understand that if we actively pursue loving Jesus, seeking after Jesus, wanting to experience Jesus, endeavoring to obey Jesus, then when you do that, the world can't compare. The world cannot compare. You think about your marriage. There's a reason why the Proverbs are so concerned on devote yourself to your wife, enjoy your wife, pursue your wife, because then nothing else compares. And the same is with Jesus. If we are loving God and we are loving our brothers in community, not loving the world isn't as much of a struggle. Now, Jesus knew that the world will hate us, and as he prayed for his disciples in John 17, he told them the solution, which also tells the attack that's going to happen or implies the attack. As he prayed, he said, I'm leaving these people, my, my, my boys, I'm leaving them in the world, I'm not taking them out, and I pray that as they are in the world, they will be protected by the evil one, by the word of truth. Do we understand that Satan and sin, the point of attack is always the truth of God. That is what's being attacked. And John describes all of sin right here and the different parts of truth that get attacked. He describes all of evil, the, quote, trinity of evil, they call it. The cravings of our sinful flesh, the lust of our eyes, and pride. That's all of sin right there, and that's all an attack on God's truth. It was all there in the Garden of Eden. Every one of those at the fall. Just read Genesis chapter 3. It was a delight to the eyes. It's going to make me smart. It'll make me like God. The objective of Satan is to bring doubt, distrust, and otherwise cause you to reject the truth of God's word. The lust of the flesh says God's word's not reliable. Something happier or something outside of God's word will make me happier. The lust of the eyes, Satan says, look, this is way more desirable. And pride is this, you can actually be God and dictate what is good, bad, and actually true. That's the temptation of sin. And it attacks each of these people differently. So we'll close with this. New believers. Satan and the world attacks the very foundation of the truth, the gospel. 
That's why John's reminding them that you're forgiven. It's the, they deny the basics of truth. That is the thing that they must focus on. We don't take the new believers into learning all kinds of systematic doctrine and memorizing the book of Romans. We hit the gospel over and over and over and over again. We should all do that, but particularly new believers. And the temptation is to deny the gospel in one of two ways. Either I'm way too holy and I don't sin, or what's the other? Anyone know? One's pride, one's despair. I've done too many terrible things and can't be forgiven. Which is maybe more apt for the new believer. So the solution is to preach the gospel, to grab the identity of Christ, because that's where they're going to be attacked. They're going to look for something else to save them, because Jesus is getting attacked himself. That's why John starts about, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one that saves. Not relationships, not money, not food, nothing. The new believer needs that. The mature believer, they don't, they've got a foundation of the truth, they understand that, but they start getting into a perversion of doctrine. Their devotion to God's word gets perverted, and what happens is they know just enough to get a lot wrong. And they start focusing on one aspect of it and go crazy with it. They have a foundation of the gospel, but then they start questioning all these other doctrines that lead them in a different direction. They're not overcome by the world so much as they're a little too connected with it. And instead of using wisdom from above and relying on that, they end up mixing it with worldly wisdom and things that kind of start sounding good. And the solution for them is not to read a bunch of books, not to download a bunch of sermons, but to study God's word. To be disciplined in God's word, devoted to God's word. Then the older seasoned folks, where do they get attacked? They don't deny the truth. They know the gospel, known it for a long time. They got their doctrines figured out. What happens, though, is they forget some of the truth. And what they forget specifically is that they have their past experiences. They have all their victories. Like I was, you know, I remember when I was part of this amazing church and did all these things, X, Y, Z, and they hold on to that. They take pride in that. And then they ignore the instructions to actually teach the next generation. And what they fail to realize is that same gospel that saved them a long time ago, that same gospel that said, go and make disciples, still says that. It's not like the Great Commission stops at age 65. We're like, well, did it, all done. We are all commanded to go make disciples. Our roles change in that. Sometimes we're the disciple, and other times we're helping to make the disciples. But we never stop. And that's the seasoned believers need to do, to know and entrust what they know to faithful men who will carry it on and carry on the mission. So, new believers, do not love the world. Love Jesus, love the cross. Mature believers, how have you designed that? Young believers, do not love the world. Love and fight for God's word. Spend time in God's word. Read God's word. Listen to God's word. Sing God's word. That will protect you. That will help you fight. And older believers, do not love the world. Love the young and the new believers. We have all of them in Damascus Road. Each of you 
have been called, if you spend any time here, to be in this place, to serve here, to be part of this family. And you are a unique part of it, but you are somewhere in that faith journey. And the question simply is, are you a child, are you a young man, or are you a father? And if you call yourself a child, should you still be one? The question is, are you maturing in the world, or are you maturing in the word? There is a difference. And I pray that if you are not a believer, you will heed John's final warning that says, just so you know, the world is passing away and nothing's going to last except God and those who love him. It's all going to burn up. So my plea for you today is to confess your sin, to confess you are a sinner, and to believe in Jesus. He is the only one who can save you. Nothing you can do is good enough. And once he saves you, you're viewed through the lens of his blood, and you look pretty darn good. And for those who have been Christians for a long time, I honestly ask that you really, really listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't let that veil fall in front of your heart. And ask yourself some really hard questions of what role you are playing now and what role God has actually commanded you to play. And if you're not living in the role that you are supposed to be on that journey, confess it, because it is sinful. And then come to the table, receive the cleansing and the one sacrifice that's good for all time, and then get on mission. Confession's half of repentance. Action is the other half, pursuit of godliness. And we have means to do that, all kinds. I would love to pray with you, I'd love to talk with you, or any of the pastors to help you in that. Be part of the family. We need a generational family of all these believers.